you are listening to the transforming india podcast jointly brought to you by the deepak and neeraj center on indian economic policies at columbia university and the times of india i am arvind panagariya director of the raj center and professor of economics at columbia my co-host on this podcast is professor praveen krishna he is a professor of international economics and business at johns hopkins university welcome praveen Hi Arvind, delighted to join you again for the seventh episode of this podcast as we continue to discuss Indian economic policies. Yes, Praveen, and today we are joined by Nashad Forbes of Forbes Marshall. He is also the former president of the Confederation of Indian Industry and a prominent industrialist as well as a public intellectual in India. Welcome, Nashad. Thank you. So, Nashad, you and your company has been there in India for a very long time, and you had been operating in the environment both before liberalization in 1991 and after that. So, I thought we'll begin at least our conversation by getting your impressions on how things evolved over time. So, maybe if uh, you would get this started by telling us a little bit about Forbes Marshall. Sure. So, Forbes Marshall has its origins in 1946. My father joined my mother's father to start an engineering business, and initially, from 1946 to 1958, we were basically a selling company in India for products that were made largely in the UK. We started manufacturing in 1958. So I take it you had to get some licenses. So in 1958, it was pre-license, but. it was just about the time that licenses started coming in so the first operations that we did we didn't have to get licenses but within a few years we started to have to get licenses when my father started the business he started with a huge amount of idealism we were one of the first companies in the new country that had just received independence but we've always i think had a very strong outward orientation we started representing foreign firms right. so we've always seen foreign firms as natural partners of indian industry and not as uh, people to be kept out right. uh, we think we should uh, as a country always be welcoming of foreign investment and foreign activity in the it was really after the exchange crisis in the mid 60s that there was a real ban on imports of products we were at that time importing products and selling them in india and that gave a real spur to manufacturing we started making more and more products but they were all built around technology that came from our foreign partners we formed two more joint ventures all with british companies those required licenses uh-huh. and the licenses were easy to get things were very open uh, my father talks a lot about going to meet people in delhi meet people in the local government and administration the whole system was actually very supportive and encouraging of industry in the 70s under indira gandhi things changed quite significantly and we found as we tried to go into new areas that there were more and more restrictions on what we could do we found for example my father had this agreement worked out to make something called ph electrodes in india which was a very sophisticated product at the time and he had this amazing deal worked out with a swiss company that was the sort of the world leader in the area where the swiss company said well here are the designs go ahead and make them and we'll form a joint venture uh, so they transfer str- you the technology uh, for no charge that's right and we struggled for 5 years and we were never able to get approval for the joint venture because there was one lab in chandigarh 
that said, we have the technology to make pH electrodes. Why are you going to a ah, Swiss company? Domestic availability yeah. angle. Yeah. So we struggled when we went, we visited the lab. We said, great, let's have a look. When we went to the lab, they said, well, we said so, but you know, if we, we don't actually have anything, we have some ideas of what we can do, but uh, we don't really have anything. So we said, well, can you say so, so that we can go ahead with the joint? But no, we can't say so because then we lose our budget. So you know, it's, uh, so we had this thing where we didn't get the joint venture. Also, also what this was a uh, government-funded lab. This was a CSR lab. I grew up with these kinds of stories around the dining table about these restrictions on what we could do for apparently no logical reason. Right. I joined the business uh, in 1986 after finishing my degrees. Tell our listeners a little bit about your education. I did a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering and history at Stanford, then a master's in industrial engineering and a PhD in technical entrepreneurship in India uh, was the, was the th subject of the thesis. And really that thesis gave me my first significant exposure to sort of economic policy in a ground up way. We would just focus on studying technical entrepreneurship in Pune. And so I went around and interviewed uh, 45 entrepreneurs, all largely technical. I heard stories of success, but I heard stories also of uh, struggling with the local bureaucracy, struggling with controls. I heard stories also of, of companies that got their start because of the perversity of some of the controls, uh, of where it, kept, it, it created space for some of these companies to get yes. started. The way the environment at, at the time was that if anything was imported and you said that, well, I'll manufacture this product here at home. You could go ahead. They, will, they will stop the exactly. imports for you. Exactly. This was also a time when we had incredibly high tariffs. Okay. I mean, typically the import duties on the products that we made, if they were allowed to be imported, was around 400%. In 1986, you said you joined the yeah. business. So maybe we pick up the story back. Sure. Yeah. So in the, first, in the first five years, I spent a lot of time on delivery performance. And the reason is that at that time, delivery performance, I would say of us as a firm and of the Indian engineering industry in general, was awful. One of the first cases that I got involved in was an order that we had for 21 large safety valves from the Vizac steel plant. Now, the Vizac steel plant was a project that was initiated by Prime Minister Nehru. This is the late 80s. Uh, we were over one year late in supplying those safety valves. Mm -hmm. Having supplied the safety valves, and each one was a real pain to make because we had to do everything in the country. Imports of everything were banned. And when we finally supplied the last one, the commissioning of those safety valves came up two years after we supplied the last one. So we were a year late. Commissioning came up two years later. And the plant was inaugurated by Prime Minister Narsimha Rao. Wow. So, so foundation stone laid in the early 60s, plant inaugurated in the early 90s. Yeah. Um, that was the way the industry worked at that time. It worked at a pace that was thoroughly glacial. And it was uh, because you had these huge tariffs, you could survive as a firm. All of this changed in 1991. So th let's, let's walk through that. Yeah. So 1991 comes through. Suddenly, all the licensing is dropped by so Prime Minister Nasimarov, both on imports, at least of the intermediate imports yes. and capital goods, which is what you are doing. Also, the investment licensing is gone. So starting in the late 80s, there was some liberalization yes. that took place. 
uh, things started, imports were allowed on something called open yeah. general license. Right. Some of our products were on open general license, but some of our products still weren't. For example, we made something called a silica analyzer. Now, we only sold six silica analyzers, these are two power plants, in the year. But because the import of printed circuit boards, populated and base printed circuit boards, were banned, mm. forget the tariff, you just couldn't import them, we had to make six printed circuit, circuit boards, a volume of six. So we had to develop all the printed circuit boards to make six printed wow. circuit boards a year. Much more expensive than, import, and, than and simply importing them. And you compete on the world market, so you couldn't have done it on large scale, even if That's you right. wanted to do it. Uh, for the That's right. World because, market. you know, for, I mean, we were just not competitive. So you had these kinds of, these kinds of skills that built up. Uh, some of them were useful, but some of them were useless. At a very high resource cost. At very high resource cost. This is what our engineers spent their time doing. So in the course of doing a lot of this indigenization, we built decent engineering skills. Mm -hmm. And the engineering skills then started becoming quite useful to us later on. So 1991, to us is a real landmark year. It's a landmark year for us as a country, of course. But it was a landmark year with a very specific sort of launch date for us. Uh, Manmohan Singh's budget speech of June 1991. To both my brother and me, it came like a revelation. It's a, to us, it was the first time that here was an Indian political leader saying, as a country, we need to change direction. Mm -hmm. he, he started by saying that this was a speech to fulfill the aspirations of Prime Minister Nehru. Mm -hmm. um, yes. But having said that, in the budget speech, what he was actually doing and announcing in the budget speech were things that were changing direction for the country completely. And this is uh, what I wrote in one of my papers, yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, uh, very early on in 1994, I did this yeah, paper, and yeah. exactly that's how, I, uh, that's how I read that speech. Exactly, exactly. It's a great speech, but it's a speech that sort of pays tribute to Nehru. It doesn't it doesn't mention Indira Gandhi. Right. It comes straight to Rajiv for a good reason, because I think Indira Gandhi, I think, damaged us as a country for decades right. on the economic Absolutely. side. She set us back by decades as a country. And that budget speech was to us uh, a marker of a new direction. And within two weeks of the budget speech, my brother and I, we said, we have to work on a bunch of things. And within two weeks, we had these discussions with the top management of the company. Mm -hmm. And we decided on three new directions. Uh, first, we did a review of all the products that we made. And we said, OK, tariffs are coming down. Now, the tariffs that came down at that time, they came down to a maximum tariff of 200%. Mm -hmm. Now, 200% is an absurdly high tariff, but it's a lot better than 400. Yes. And it's a lot better than having imports banned, banned. for certain categories of items. Right. So 1991, everything that we made could be imported but with a tariff of ranging between 100 and 200 percent, typically at that time. So the first question we asked was, if the tariff is zero, right. what would we still make and what would we not be competitive in and need to stop making? And we essentially concluded that about between a third and a half of all the products that we made, we would not be competitive making. So we said, fine, this is the half we need to focus on. Right. And the other half, as it goes away with tariffs, going away, let them go away as products that we make. Uh, is, is it your sense that some of your contemporary companies were doing something similar or you were quite unique? I think other companies also did an analysis of product portfolio. But the other two things I think that we did 
we said, let's set up an international department to export our products. Now, at that time, we sold less than 1% of what we did overseas. You know, it was like by accident, we got an order <laughs> from some country. And we said, why did we decide to do it? Not actually because at that time of the attractiveness of international markets. We did it because we said, foreign companies are going to be coming to India, right? Foreign investment was now going to be welcome as opposed to being de right. deterred earlier on. And we said, well, if foreign companies are going to come and compete with us in India, the best way of ensuring that we're competitive with them is let's try to compete with them outside of India. Huh? So he said, because that will teach us how to compete with them at home. So we said, let's invest in international as a way of actually improving our own competitiveness. The third thing that we did, which I think was unique at that time for the engineering industry, was we completely rethought R&D. Now this tied in very nicely with my own academic field, which was sort of technology in developing countries. Right. And I said, well, here we have an opportunity to actually implement what I've been teaching, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. On investing in technology, how you build technical capability in a firm, how you build that technical capability and then start using it uh, for the firm's long run competitiveness. Until 1991, R&D for us meant one word, indigenization. If it was important, do it locally. Yes. And we said, fine, from now onwards, any project we take up in R&D has to be for the world market. So it cannot be to develop a product only for India. There's no point in doing that any longer. That complete change in direction for R&D, for the first three years, we got nothing out. We had some really bright, good engineers who joined us at that time and who we recruited from different places. And we started building capabilities of product development. And about three years out, we started seeing a flow of new products start coming out. And that capability has become absolutely core to our success through to now. So I think those three new directions, you know, of uh, what will we make if completely free imports are allowed? How do we compete internationally? And uh, what do we do with R&D in a completely new way to build our own proprietary technical capabilities such that we can operate internationally? I think those three new directions that we set on after hearing Manmohan Singh's budget speech have been the foundation of our success over all these you years. Know, my own recollections of 1990s uh, are that Indians were so skeptical of liberalization. Oh, yes. And, and you know, what would happen is that you would look in the composition of exports and so forth sure. at the relatively aggregate level, you know, one digit uh, mm. classification maybe. Uh, and you will not see a whole lot of change in the composition. But of course, a lot of this gets hidden because uh, yeah. quality changes, a lot yeah. of these other things happen. Uh, so uh, from that perspective, I think, you know, your experience uh, uh, is very fascinating history. But, you know, it was a, an, an interesting time also because, well, Manmohan Singh had a chief economic advisor at that time, Ashok Desai. Yeah. And Ashok is still a good friend. I wrote him a fan letter, having read something that I really liked that he'd written. And Manmohan Singh brought him in to the government as his chief economic advisor in 1991. And Ashok describes that time as saying that, listen, you know, the people, the people who he'd basically been writing critical comments about in terms of their economic thinking and policies suddenly found that he was their boss. <laughs> so, and so he was there for about two years. Yes. But one of the things that he did at that time was that he put me as a 31-year-old on this group that would come to the pre-budget meeting with the finance minister mm. each year. And uh, 
the first meeting that I went to in 1992, mm -hmm. I was seated between Ratan Tata and Mukesh Ambani. I suddenly found that I was on the front page of a lot of newspapers <laughs> thanks to Thanks only to that one fact. And when I used to go to those meetings, I went for five years. At the meetings, I would always make this comment saying that, listen, you know, we've been protected as industry for 40 years. We've learned how to compete. And the sooner we reduce tariffs, the better for Indian industry, because it will force us to be competitive. Continue to come down. And tariffs came down. And at the end of each of the sessions, when we would meet Manmohan Singh and he'd say bye to us, he would always keep saying to me, keep saying the things you're saying. The voice of the CII president in those meetings was always a voice for openness. And I learned much after the fact that was very much part of the institution and the role it played at that time in encouraging the reform process and in taking a stand that was strongly in favor of liberalization and opening up the economy. So let me come to this from one another angle. So as we know, pre-1991, the government was uh, very much uh, involved in manufacturing activity and it did so at least in two ways. One was that it reserves several of the industries for itself. Yep. So these were public sector monopolies. Yep. Post-liberalization, uh, what kind of change from that perspective? Sure. We get business from different industrial customers. About 50% of our business in 1991 came from public sector companies. You compare that with today, less than 10% of our business comes from public sector companies. And the reason is that uh, over the years, the public sector share in industrial output has dropped because the private sector has grown. And today, except for the oil refining sector, the public sector is not a significant proportion of any of manufacturing. One of the results of the opening up in 1991 for us as a firm were incredibly positive. You know, throughout the 90s, we grew 30-40% a year and then there was a slowdown late 90s early 2000s when you know growth came down essentially it, it was either flat or 0-5% 6% for a few years and then again in the 2000s we grew 30-40% a year. That was of course um, for the entire country a, a period that's of right. tremendous That's growth. right and so we only have a positive view of the liberalization, the opening up, what it did to us as a firm and what it did to our customers, you know, as I mentioned, you know, that our, our share of business from the public sector came down. But even among private sector firms, firms that we used to sell to and the firms that we sold to sell to now are very different. Mm. Firms that we used to sell to were many of these older style firms, you know, the, the Modi's and the Singanias. And there was a group of firms that dominated certain industry segments. And some of those went away. I mean, mm. some of those disappeared uh, in the 90s they couldn't compete as the economy opened up and many new firms and new entrants came in. The pharmaceutical industry is about 15% of our total business. Mm. It was tiny in 1991. Sure. Food processing is uh, probably 25% of our total business today, tiny in 1991. Interesting also because lots of the people have this view, this very romantic view that somehow that the pharmaceutical industry did very well because we had this protection back in the, you know, starting early in early 1970s when Mrs. Gandhi sort, uh, sort of ended the uh, product patent uh, on, on uh, chemicals and uh, pharmaceuticals, um, but the, uh, which may have some grain of truth. It gave the firms, it gave many of these firms their start, yeah. I think. You know, the, the fact that we didn't have product patents for pharmaceutical products until 2005. Yeah. 
And, and I think, so it gave many of these pharmaceutical firms their start, but the ones that really thrived and, have, and continue to thrive now built real capabilities. Right. You but know? this happened, you see, the, the, the real stuff seems to have come after globalization, yes. right? Because in yes. 1970 to, 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 you know, 2000, if you take it, there's a yes. year period. That's uh, right. Uh, That's very right. Limited, very limited. Yes. Uh, so, yep. so the, I mean, e even for industries that had been protected so much uh, uh, that eventually succeeded, this yep. liberalization was really critical to their success. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I think it's a great thing that you're doing these, these podcasts because I think we forget how much the country has been transformed. Um, that's right. As a that's result of thing. the opening up, you know, those and and how bad those days that's were. That's right. Yeah? yeah, and and I think you know, say in the last two or three years, we've seen actually a return of tariffs mm -hmm. in certain areas. Right. You know, and import tariffs being brought in in different areas like steel and so on. And I think we have to be very careful yes. to not go back in that direction Absolutely. again. And I worry especially that some of my friends in industry. Right. Uh, keep demanding tariffs. And people in industry often do demand tariffs. And I think the role of the government is to hear them and then act in the national interest. And the national interest is not to have those tariffs. And there are anti-dumping measures and so on that one can use legitimately if you have dumping taking place in the country. But that's not a justification for long-term tariffs which I think actually it ends up making the local industry less competitive. So I think it's something for us to view with some danger. And I think in the case for free trade, as you've done in your book, <laughs> is very important. And I think reminding people that as industry, we're a lot more successful today than we would otherwise have been. I'll give you an example of one firm. I'm, I'm on the board of Bajaj Auto. Bajaj Auto exports 40% of their output today. Yes. In over 70 countries in the world, they have a very significant share of the domestic market. Right. And this would just not have been possible no, without and, the and kind no, of liberalization and, that's and, taken place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's one yeah. side of it. The other side of it is that even though yeah. auto industry currently yeah. is bitterly complaining, you talk to Rajiv Bajaj and he's not disturbed in the least. And, because and, and because of that I can compete in the world market. You exactly. Know, the exactly. Market, if the domestic demand is a bit weak, that's right. Uh, I still got the world demand. And that's so, right. You know, exactly. And, and since I'm competitive in that market, I can do it. Exactly. Uh, not so for auto industry, which has had uh, the kind of protection really that we used to have prior to 1991. Correct. Right? You know, see, the only difference for auto industry pre and mm. post 91. Mm. is that post-91, we allowed foreign investors to come, come, in. to come into India. So, so, so that we and, and we ended the licensing. We correct. also ended the investment licensing. Correct. So some competition happened. So as a result, the auto industry did grow. But it grew very much like a non-traded industry. Correct. So it's dependent entirely on the domestic correct. demand. Correct. Uh, they, their share in the global market is less than 1%. And, and, and so you know, we, if you talk to people mm -hmm. in the auto industry, in the car industry, mm -hmm. right? they'll tell you India is the most competitive country to make small cars. And my answer is, if India is the most competitive country in the world to make small cars, why then do you need protection? Exactly. And even yeah. if you have the protection, yeah. show me on uh, yeah. uh, in your exports, yeah. right? If you're really, truly competitive, yeah. Yeah. then you ought to be having some 4 or 5% share Correct. in the global exports. Correct. But that's something. The only, the only 
company that actually is a significant exporter of cars from India is Hyundai. But for two-wheelers, fortunately, we have a huge success story in Bajaj Auto. Okay, so as we wind up uh, the discussion today, maybe some thoughts on um, the current situation and where the, uh, you, you think the government ought to go? I mean, we've talked about tariffs already. That's one specific point. I think learning from the whole liberalization process, I mean, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed was, was actually being engaged in policy areas. But one of, the, one, of the, one of the things that I most appreciated that all the people I met in the government were committed, really wanted to do the right thing, and were very hardworking and focused on what they were trying to achieve. What I also realized at the time was that the bandwidth, once you got below the level of, let's say, a secretary or a joint secretary in a department, that the bandwidth to actually do anything was very limited. Yes. Yeah. So my conclusion is actually not a political conclusion at all. My, my conclusion is, given that the government has very limited bandwidth, it needs to focus. Mm -hmm. And needs to focus on doing just two or three things that are very significant mm -hmm. and not 20 different things. Mm -hmm. Because if it tries to do 20 different things, it will probably not achieve any of them. While if it focuses on these two or three things and focuses also its political capital on those two or three things, mm -hmm. it can really make a change. Mm -hmm. So we have, without question, a need to worry about the financial sector, both fixing it and I think reforming it. 100% mm -hmm. we should be moving on privatization of public sector banks. So, and we don't need to do it, you know, if there are now going to be 12 large public sector banks, we don't need to do all 12 at one time. Right, we can start with the three smallest of the 12 see what happens, right. learn from that experience, and then see what to do with the nine remaining. Right. So we, I think, need to focus our reforming efforts on a few areas and bring about some substantial change. So privatization, without question, mm -hmm. is a big opportunity. And I think given the current resource constraints mm -hmm. that we're operating in in the economy, it would also provide a flow of funds that yeah. will enable us to fund many other work programs. The program that we have of uh, moving from a subsidy in kind uh, regime to direct benefit transfers, we've had, we have many success stories of the last five years. Yeah. I think we should learn from those and expand that. Yeah. So the fertilizer subsidy continues to remain largely a producer subsidy. It should become a direct benefit transfer right. to farmers. Right. Yeah? I think there's lots that we can do on the trade side. Uh, so one is import tariffs without question. but I think also engaging with on the free trade agreement area. Mm -hmm. One is we've got RCEP. The importance of RCEP for us in the long run as a country is, is, is vital. Today, some of our leading companies might be quite India-focused. But 10 years out, uh, the Indian market may not be big enough for them. Yes. And yes. Uh, they will want to be outside. Exactly. And when they want to be outside, they will want to be in the most dynamic region of the world, which is Asia. So they will want to be in RCEP, okay. even if they don't have an interest in it today. Okay. And we have to see what our interests are as industry over the next 25 years and exactly. sign RCEP on that basis. Yeah, in RCEP, you know, it's not like you're yeah. going to eliminate tariffs tomorrow. Yeah, uh, yeah. we have a 25-year period. Yeah, it's, it's you know, there are 5, period. 10, 15, 20, and 25 years of adjustment that's yeah. provided. So it's, so it's, long. it's long. And And then we should engage with 
other countries. So we should engage with the Africa free trade agreements. There's a real opportunity for Indian industry throughout Africa. There are opportunities for us in South America. We should engage there. And we should engage, of course, as we are doing now with the US and EU. Now the EU, we've had, I think the negotiations on a free FTA are now have been running over 15 years. Yes. But I think you know, finding some traction to conclude that sooner rather than later would be a good idea. Because it will help us, particularly in industries that we need, like garments and textiles. The market is in Europe, the market is in the US. And we're at a disadvantage in selling to those markets because a Bangladesh or a Vietnam has duty-free access and our garments come with a tariff of at least 10%. So, you know, there are some obvious trade opportunities for us as a country. And I think if we keep that perspective of wanting to work with, from a policy side, the firms that are working and aligned with India's future and the future that we should have of being firms that are competitive, that want to be competitive in the world, that want to have a good leading international position in the world. And policy should focus on them and not on those firms that want to be protected and stay at home. This brings us to the end of the episode today. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, this is Arvind Panagaria on the Transforming India podcast, produced by Atisha Kumar, research scholar at Columbia University, and edited by Rebecca Megalwari at Insights at Columbia University. Thank you for listening.